General Nerdery. We here at General Nerdery grew tired. Well, not tired. Oh, yes, tired, but not like not paying attention tired of the national conversation going on about corrupt police and racism and all the problems that go with that. So we picked up a book that was about corrupt police and racism and all the stuff that goes with that. And we're here to tell you about it today. Woo. Welcome back to the disc world. Yeah, we're already back, aren't we? Yeah, no, I'm, fucking, I'm always on the disc world on some level. Not that that's a problem, but it's almost a little bit. So we have so many things we can cover. I'm not trying to complain. It sounds like I'm complaining. <laughs> it sounds like I'm complaining. I'm not complaining. I love being on Discworld. It's just, we got there. Yeah. We got there. Uh, well, the fun thing about doing episodes is like, oh, this is what I want to talk about next time. Or like something new or the next time. But the thing we forgot to do here in this podcast that we've now been doing for like 40 episodes is say that I'm Tyler and I'm Zach and that this is general nerdery yeah, and we're here about liking things which you can tell from the way that we're complaining about things totally complaining already I'm not complaining I fucking love this world <laughs> anyways before that and before news and before I love our news here by the way they're the one place where I don't make me sad but <laughs> before news what have you been ingesting this week what have I been in? Okay, so only, I mean, I'm still playing Witcher 3. You actually came in and I was finishing up a couple things. Um, that's still going well. Um, I finished Shit's Creek. That was awesome. The show ended when it wanted to end, which oh, not so a lot of shows. Oh, so it's done, done. I wasn't yeah, sure if it was. Yeah, it's done, done. Um, I wasn't ready to wait till October for it to be on Netflix. So <laughs> I just bought the season digitally. Um, and it was completely worth it. Like I said, it's one of the shows that got to end when it wanted to, rather than getting stretched out. So it's great. Yeah, I don't know. That was cool. The big thing, though, was Friday night, got off of work, and it was opening day. I didn't go out to a theater, although technically I guess I could have. I guess the AMCs in town are open again. Yeah, but... <laughs> but I didn't. Instead, stayed in, rented, Bill and Ted Face the Music. Oh, how is it? I hear it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Honestly, like, okay, because we talked about it not too long ago. If I'm being honest, like, Jansaw and Bob Reboot kind of did the make these characters grow up story better. Oh. But... I mean, Reboot had a couple really hard-hitting scenes, so, like, I'm not going to... Surprisingly hard-hitting scenes. You so are I'm also not... such a big Kevin Smith yeah. fanboy. Um, no, it's... F I, that's the thing, though. Like, I'm a huge Bill and Ted. Like, I, I'm sure we're, we're going to talk about them in some episodes, so I don't want to say too much right now, but I might have my senior year of high school did my senior term paper on the time travel inconsistencies presented you, within the Bill and Ted yes. series. Uh, <laughs> so I have a bit of an affection there too. And it it's was the, great. It's on in the its list own of way. stuff that I'm like, man, we've been reporting about this since the very beginning. We need to actually like cover it. And all of those things are coming out like right now. Yeah. The, <laughs> all, at, all at once. Um, if somebody didn't like it, I get it. There was enough there for me personally that I really dug it. Though it's more charming and 
uh, surprising how they're able to keep some of the things feeling fresh than it is actually, like, great. It sounds like, because a lot of my friends are talking about it online and they're really, they're all really enjoying it. And I think part of it is that it's the kind of feel good that we need right now. It's definitely rather feel good. Um, I think the stronger version would have probably included the daughters more than they are. Not that they're not included, Mm -hmm. but I also think that might have ruined the pacing. So they probably chose the best balance as it was. I don't know. I, I haven't I, seen it, and to be honest, it's been so long since I've seen the first two that I actually don't remember them. Like, I know the things that are in there, but I doubt I've seen them since I was, like, 10 years old. And that's a thing. I think a lot of people are forgetting that Bogus Journey actually wasn't all that good when you go back and rewatch <laughs> it. I still fucking love it, but, like, death is the best part of Bogus Journey, by far. Um, and this, so this one isn't any worse, that's for goddamn sure. It's not any worse than Bogus Journey. Whether it's better is up to your own personal preferences. But they did enough things that spoke directly to me, like Kid Cudi's character, that I was I was totally in. So good. Um, I don't have a ton of new stuff. This is a problem I'm having. As I was telling you before we started, I jumped back in Assassin's Creed Black Flag because I still haven't finished it. I jumped into Breath of the Wild for a little while because anytime I'm sad, I go there. God, I sound like I'm crazy depressed this episode. That's like a fourth time I've mentioned sad. Um, I listened to Going Postal, which is another Discworld book because I've been thinking about the post office a lot. And that book is literally about why the post office is important. Obviously, Men at Arms is, I mean, I finished it on the way here. (laughs) I think... The only, like, new thing that I've been ingesting is something I discovered just yesterday, which was songs from the 1920s that are incredibly filthy. Oh, nice. Like, Bessie Smith specifically, uh, but there were a few others, and... I know I've heard a couple of those just because I like searching out songs from the 1920s and 30s that are super explicitly about weed smoking. Oh, see, this is super explicitly about fucking. Yeah, um, yeah. there's some crossover. Oh, sometimes. I'm sure. I have yeah. no doubt. Yours also. That's an amazing genre. <laughs> Kitchen Man is the most like directly sexual song I have ever heard, and I've listened to WAP. That's what got me thinking about this. Like people being like, "Oh my god, it's so sexual." I'm like, Literal line from Kitchen Man here. Beyond the, the just, there's yeah. a line from the, my, his Frankfurter tastes so sweet, which Frankfurters should not taste sweet. I know you're talking about it, something else, but no. He drank some pineapple juice. Oh, yeah. But uh, is when I eat his donut, I only leave the hole. He's always welcome to use my sugar bowl. And I was just like, Bessie. <laughs> like, uh, she's got another song about a deep sea diver that can hold his breath and stay down so long. Like, it's amazing when you think about it at all. Because the kid, like, if I had heard this as a kid, I would have been like, okay. Yeah. Like, but as an adult, wow, you are not holding back, black woman from 1928. I love you now. It's, it's like all the people that never considered what Sheena Easton's Sugar Walls were was about. Or... Uh, even I Want to Hold Your Hand is subtext for I Want to Fool Around. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to have to actually listen to that. Like I said, I know I've crossed over and heard some of those sometimes because 
I do really enjoy like 1920s jazz about weed. So yeah, unfortunately, the only problem with it is the copies I found. The recordings are eh. not very good, even for mm-hmm. the 1920s, because it was a black woman singing in 1928. So they weren't get, probably not getting top of the line equipment. Go sing in someone's can. But it was friggin' great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. That actually sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to check that shit out. And it's out there. It's not my usual suggestions, so I like that. All right, we're going to get the big sad news out of the way first. And then we're going to next week dedicate an entire episode. Uh, Chadwick Boseman has passed away at age 43 from colon cancer. He, yeah, this is, a, we're recording this about three days after that happened. For you guys, it's about a week. Uh, we almost put this episode off to do this entire episode just about it, but we wanted a little more time to dive into Black Panther a little better. Yeah. Kind of across the board. Um, I don't know how how focused we're going to be next week. I know there's a couple things we're for sure going to read, but yeah, but, uh, this is a huge bummer. This is, I only know him from black Panther. I know a lot of other people say he's in a lot of other good stuff. I did love, I read in an interview once about gods of Egypt. Oh yeah. Cause he's like the only black guy in gods of Egypt. And he's like, look, man, we needed some representation there. Side note, I still don't know how that happens considering Alex Proyas made that movie and he grew up in Egypt. I don't. I don't know. That movie just went weird. Oh, I forgot he was in that. It's, oh, my God. Yeah, he was Thoth. Yeah. King, uh, God of knowledge. Um, you know, I read uh, Ryan. What is it? Ryan Coogler? Who yeah, the director. Wrote, yeah, directed Black Panther. He wrote a very touching tribute, which I really recommend people read. Uh, I want to say Trevor Noah had one that was very strong as well. I have a really, really short one. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to go through any of those longer ones because they might have made me cry. Oh, yeah. Uh, So I do have what Michael Harriet wrote on Twitter. Who was Michael? Uh, He writes for The Root. Okay. Chadwick Boseman played Thurgood Marshall, James Brown, Jackie Robinson, and T'Challa. He lives forever. Yeah, buddy. Black Panther was such a powerful movie just because we've never seen anything quite like it. And when it first came out, all the credits seemed to go to Michael B. Jordan. And he deserves so much credit. He made Killmonger a character that I really like for once. The same way M'Baku was not racist for the first time in the Man-Ape's existence. Like, but we're kind of realizing how good T'Challa was the whole time, too. Uh, The question on everyone's minds right now is what happens next for Black Panther 2? Because that's already been announced. Uh, I have seen a whole lot of calls for don't recast, have Shuri be the next Black Panther. I already wanted her to be the next Black Panther, so I'm kind of on board with that. But I kind of hope she's only Black Panther for like a movie as a stepping stone to something else. I have found I would be okay with that. I have found myself disagreeing and not because I think Shuri would be a black, bad Black Panther. Get it out there. She did it in the comics. It was good. That actress whose name I don't know off the top of my head is extremely good. I think you could do a really good movie that way. I think Shuri is more powerful as a character in her own right 
than just as the next Black Panther. Uh, the stuff we're talking about next week, should they do a really good job of her becoming more than just the Black Panther, which I really admired. And the other thing I was hearing a lot is like, only, only Chadwick Boseman can play T'Challa. And I don't think I agree with that. And that's not a knock on Chadwick Boseman, but I think the character of T'Challa is bigger than one person. Yeah. I um, d- don't rush to replace T'Challa, like, or to replace Bozeman. I kind of have an idea for what I would do, I think. I'm also admitting that I am <clears throat> biased by trends I've noticed in comic books that are not necessarily going to be true in movies. I am increasingly not a huge fan of legacy characters of someone else taking on the mantle. Mm. Uh, I mean, there are a few that I like, for example, uh, Miles Morales, but because you know they're going to the other one's going to come back. You know, if someone else takes on the mantle of Captain America, you know Steve will be back to take that. I feel the same way about T'Challa. If someone else becomes the Black Panther, you know it's just until T'Challa is back to take on the position. Um which kind of cheapens a lot of the legacy characters sometimes. But that might not be true in movies. Like, there's, it's not a guarantee that we know T'Challa's coming back in Marvel Disney, because we don't know what's happening next. They're doing a really good job of, in some ways, moving past where the comics are willing to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, I know what I would do. I think I know what I would do. I would have, because it's, it's happened in the comics when Shuri died, mm-hmm. that T'Challa went in, it's at the Shadowlands? What is it? Uh, I can't remember the name. It, I think it's the Shadowlands or something. The, the land of the ancestors, basically. Yeah. yeah. I'm just going to, even if it's not Shadowlands, I'm going to use Shadowlands, gonna go Shadowlands. As, short, as shorthand right now. Y'all know what I'm talking about. There's there's enough undead realms in uh, comic books that we get them mixed up. Like, he's went in there searching for her before. Mm-hmm. Have at the beginning, because when he's all suited out, it's all CG anyway. Like, he gets killed. Have her search him out. Have her search him out. Turns out by the end of the movie, like whatever he did because of his role in Endgame, Infinity War, he was at peace and he's deeper in where if she follows, she's gone as well. Mm -hmm. But there's somebody that wasn't at peace that she might be able to bring back. You want it to be Killmonger. Killmonger. I've heard arguments for that. That'd be an interesting way of doing it. It would be real fucking complicated considering how actively against him so many of the uh, Wakandan royal family were. Be interesting. Still have Shuri be queen, though, if you do that. Yeah. Like, so so he's back and he's the Black Panther, but he's not the king of Wakanda. Right. And he's just taken on the mantle. And put the challenge of what that power struggle would be that could be really interesting and shuri's now just queen and having to like keep him in line and it would also force shuri to have to consider things that she doesn't have to do being she's always been the younger sibling Mm -hmm. like my brother's going to be king so i don't really have to worry about it too much that's my thoughts i don't know that's interesting i i sound like a real downer and i'm worried that whenever i'm like i don't know if i want shuri to be black panther if i'm coming across as one of the neckbeards but it could be extremely well done. Yeah. Shuri 
if they didn't want to introduce an entirely new character, Shuri's also the short way that they get to Ironheart as well. That's true. Although in the most recent Ironheart series, they had Ironheart and Shuri having to work together and them not getting along since they're both <laughs> like super genius teenage women. Yeah. And just not sure how to deal with each other because they're both like kind of raging egotists about how smart they are because they're both insanely brilliant. Yeah. Also, I think it'd be really hard to write Shuri into that part, but I could see it happening. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it's the easy short wait if you wanted to get there. Like, oh, we already have this character and we can just do this and this and... The nice thing and the thing I have to keep remembering is, again, the world of the comics doesn't have to be the world, uh, or the world of the movies doesn't have to be the world of the comics, and it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that different creative teams take over books, comics don't have to follow, or movies don't have to follow the same rules, which is great. And it might be why I'm okay with recasts, because I'm used to creative teams leaving and a new take on a character coming in. At the drop of a hat. I mean, growing up, we used to get excited about over who the next Bond would be. We're still excited whenever they have a new Bond. Yeah, in. I mean, we just keep being like, Daniel, what you think? And he's like, fine. Dive into the money pit one more time. We're like, damn it, not Idris. <laughs> Quit saying yes, Daniel. <laughs> Tom Hiddleston. Hmm, I like it. Anyway. <laughs> uh, we got kind of, we got into where it could go. And distracted ourselves from the sad part. But. So, okay. A fan... Uh, I just feels weird saying a fan. A friend who listens to the podcast uh, told me that their favorite part is listening to us talk and being like, this is not where I thought that conversation was going to go. Um, fuck, it sucks that he's gone, though. Yeah. And yeah. especially finding out that how much he did while battling with the disease... And at and 43, he's 11 years older than me. Like, this is one of, I mean, I know I'm mortal. And I've had moments of like, I'm going to die in the past. But this is one of the ones where I went, oh, like, that's actually like resonating with me a little more. And recontextualizes some of the uh, pictures in the in the wake of some of the premieres and stuff where he was looking super fatigued and people would kind of make fun of it in the press. And so, man, I would be so exhausted doing the premieres, let alone with cancer premieres look so much more exhausting to me than making a movie does. <laughs> All right. You're going to sit in front of a camera and people are going to ask you the same questions across the world. Hard pass. Yep. 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 All right. Let's get some fun stuff. Please. We have our first very, very not clear, but something look of the sandworms in Dune. Oh, I haven't seen this. We got a mouth. It looks like it's got a fuck ton of teeth. Okay. It's something better than nothing. It looks like it's got the, like, four-way mouth opening thing going a little bit that I think of when I think of sandworms. Like, the, 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 the four things that go I think it might be more than point. four. I think it might be around six, but it's that, hard that to tell. still work. Yeah. It's hard to tell. Uh, I can't wait till we see more. I do kind of hope that the one we're looking at here 
is just the one that attacks the the mining crew early on, and that Shai Halud's even bigger. Well, yeah, it doesn't look huge for sandworms, but uh, we'll see. Though I'm I'm excited for this. I'm so excited. Ever since I read Dune, I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dune. I do. The rumor is though that we should be getting the first trailer on the ninth. We'll see if that actually happens. But cool. That's what I've been what I've been hearing for the past week is the ninth. It was originally supposed to be out by the first, but then it got delayed. That's fine. Whatever. I'm not one to freak out about delays much. Stuff happens. Stop announcing things like three years ahead. What day is coming out? Uh, so I know you've been liking Lower Decks. Yes. How would you feel about the X-Files version of that? Ambivalent? I've uh, never really watched much X-Files. Right. I, I don't know how much of a go the first season is yet, but they are working on something called X-Files Albuquerque, which sounds basically like Star Trek Lower Decks, where it's... But for X-Files. The offshoot wacky agents. Um, I'd heard there was a rumor of an animated X-Files spinoff that the original X-Files stars... What is that? That's Dave Duchovny and... Uh, Gillian Anderson. Gillian Anderson, thank you. That they weren't involved in. I don't know if I care, but an animated series dealing with... Like, the idea of X-Files is very appealing to me. In the same way that I like listening to, you know, lore or uh, alien podcasts or all of that. But eh, it's too early to have much other than, okay. Yeah, um, it would be done with Chris Carter, the original creator of X-Files, uh, along with the creators of Paradise PD, which I've never watched. So I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. I don't know if I've heard of Paradise PD, so that's... But I just, I feel like it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle for them since Lower Decks is already out. I feel like you could do this without connecting it to X-Files. Right. And do just as powerful a show, maybe more powerful of a show, because you could build your own uh, world around it in a way that you wouldn't be able to do. Like, Lower Decks has to be Star Trek to work the way it does. Yeah. Oh, and that's the other thing I've been watching. I've been watching Lower Decks still. How's that been going? Uh, really enjoyed it. Just watched the fourth episode. It's getting better every episode. The mediocre white boy it needs a slight boost to be something more than a mediocre white boy because the other three characters are quickly outshining him. All right. They had a joke because a, a person ascends like to a higher plane of being energy. Mm -hmm. uh, and he mentions the world is on the back of a giant koala. And I'm like, oh, so we're just straight up like making me think of Discworld here. <laughs> uh, I kind of like koala, though. That's awesome. I I really like it. But yeah, like, I don't know. That's, that's all I got. There's not too much depth in it. Uh, all right. So... It's kind of neat, especially because of how successful they've already been with his his works. Michael Crichton, writer of Westworld, also wrote Sphere. Didn't was he write Jurassic Park? Jurassic Park. Um, I think he was executive producer on ER. Yeah, okay. Uh, Congo. 
<laughs> okay, so not every movie was a major winner on his part, but... Anyway, he wrote 1987 novel Sphere was turned into a movie in 98. Now the creators of Westworld are going to be adapting it into a TV show. And they've already knocked it out of the park with one of his works, so... Cool. I'm kind of excited. I like Crichton. I've read a, not a, all of his shit, but I've read a few of his things. Uh, I know I did read Sphere once, but it was way back in high school, and I don't really remember it that well. This shit is supposed to be pretty good. Um, I don't... I just... All I've seen is Jurassic Park. Oh, this week. That's another thing. God. So much stuff. I'm like, I don't know. I played Assassin's Creed again. Prey is actually one of the scariest fucking books I've ever read. I think that was one of his ones that was published posthumously. But anyway. I've heard of that one. It's really good. Got killer nanobots. Anyway, uh, that's happening. I'll be excited to hear more about it. But to be honest, I still I was excited when they're making Westworld and I still haven't watched it. So I hear it's extremely good. I, same here. I keep meaning to watch it. I was I kept up with all the production when they were making the first season because I was so excited that they were doing Westworld. Then I just never watched it. Oh, I have many shows. Like, I still haven't finished Picard. I obsessively was waiting for Picard. I I think probably because Game of Thrones was going at the time, and I fucking picked the wrong fucking... Back the wrong horse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is cool. After she got a lot of shit after The Last Jedi, and then pretty much didn't have a part in fucking Rise of Skywalker. It was my biggest critique of Rise of Skywalker. Kelly Marie Tran has been announced as the star of Disney's next animated epic, Raya and the Lost Dragon. Last Dragon, not Lost. It sounds like she stole the fucking part from what I'm reading here. They had somebody else cast, and then they were re-going through some of the auditions. They're like, now nah, we got to do this chick. Great. I liked Kelly Marie Tran, um, and I liked her character, what, Rose Tico? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like movies about dragons. Thinking of things I was really excited for and never saw. I still haven't seen the third How to Train Your Dragon. Yeah, me either, and I was really excited Great. for it. Right, no, um... It, from the looks of this, they might be trying to cash in on some of that How to Train Your Dragon money, but, but without in the Southeast Asia. Cool. She will be the first actress of Southeast, Southeast Asian descent to lead a Disney movie. Cool. Uh, being Vietnamese American. And the whole land that Raya set in is not there, but there. Yeah. So, uh, that's fun. And this last... I don't know if I fucking love this or hate this. What do you think Berlanti got his hands on now? Craig Berlanti. Um, if you had to guess, uh, after after what he did with superheroes and then moving on to Riverdale. Oh, no, I forgot he was involved in Riverdale. What What's up? Next, uh, the CW is looking to develop with Greg Berlanti. A Powerpuff Girls live action series. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Greg Berlanti, man, you are just living in that CW money. Like, I know you do other stuff for other people, but you pretty much hang out at CW. Now, here's the crazy reasons why we might end up actually seeing this show. Because superheroes is the CW's bread and butter? Because the other two people attached are Oscar-winning writer Diablo Cody, who did Juno. 
Huh. And writer Heather Regnier, who wrote on Veronica Mars and Sleepy Hollow. I loved Veronica Mars. I loved Sleepy Hollow. Oh, it was so trashy. Until the fourth season. I haven't seen it. Hmm. That's... Hmm. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, it it would follow Blossom, Bubbles, and Buttercup as... 20-somethings who are resentful that they didn't have proper childhoods because they were always fighting crime. Of course, then they have to get back together to save the world. I don't know how to deal with this. Like, (laughs) anytime I try to form a coherent thought, uh, I don't necessarily need more let's take things I liked as a kid and make them, like, washed-up bitter adults. But at the same time... I don't know, uh, like, I would rather have a teen superhero take than, like, a young adult superhero take. Oh, yeah. But, okay. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think they call it? They're not going to still call it Powerpuff Girls. Oh, no, I think they will. What, Powerpuff Women isn't going to work. Powerpuff Ladies sounds weirdly sexist. But it just became Riverdale. That's what I'm thinking. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not Archie and Friends. So, what are you expecting? What was the name of the city in Power Puff Girls? I don't know if I can remember. Something City, The Professor, Mojo Jojo. <laughs> Mojo Jojo. I would name it that. Yes. Actually, <laughs> seeing them do my live action Mojo Jojo because you know they're willing to dive into apes with the whole let's use Gorilla City for real. Yeah. They, yeah exactly. Um might justify the existence of this show. I wonder about him, because the character of him, who's a drag queen devil, basically, in some ways is kind of a gay icon today, but could just as easily come across as so problematic live action if you don't stick the landing right. I know they did a Powerpuff Girls... TV show a couple of years ago. I don't know. I had a friend that was really into it, but I don't know if it was any... I don't know if it was popular or any good. Um, I like this better than I've heard arguments. We should do a live-action Samurai Jack. No, we shouldn't. Yeah, I agree. No, we shouldn't. Samurai Jack is for a very specific style, and that's my one worry with Powerpuff Girls as well. The art style was a very big part of what made Powerpuff Girls work, that I'm worried about changing it up too much. Will it still... What are their costumes going to be? They can't just wear the skirts. It's going to look super, like... You know, they would just color code them, and they would just change up and have normal outfits. Oh, so we're going to do it Smallville style of superheroes, where that, I mean, color I, code I, I have civilian to imagine clothes. that that's what they would do. I think to do this, because apparently my brain's just trying to design the show for them now, you would have to live in that kind of like bubblegum pop color madness that was so, you know exactly what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about when I say that. If you owned that right, you could do it. If you try and make it dark and gritty, if you try and arrow this, it's not going to work. No. No. Or Riverdale this. God, don't Riverdale this. That's the thing, though. Like, the one gal wrote on Sleepy Hollow, and the only reason Sleepy Hollow worked is because it understood how fucking stupid of a show it was. Like, everything about that show, when you try to explain it out loud, 
sounds like you're describing the stupidest fucking show that was ever made. And it was charming as fuck. No, you need, you do need this same, like, we understand you, how fucking goofy this is. But there's a difference between we need to understand how goofy this is and we need to make this grim dark. Yeah. We don't need Archie being a member of a motorcycle gang and banging his teacher. To well, tell some people I mean, obviously need Okay, that. so Riverdale lasted for like five seasons and it took off. But we don't need the equivalent of that <laughs> of Powerpuff Girls. Like, no, no. A part of the appeal of Powerpuff Girls, although admittedly I didn't say part of the appeal of Archie, is the like kind of timeless, charming feel when you do it right. I'm reserving judgment. Who I'm, knows if it's even going to happen? It's still in the early enough stages that it might not. But with those names attached, it's hard to see it not getting a season, honestly. Yeah. For some reason, it's making me think of the Adrian Pilecki Wonder Woman series mm. that never happened. Mm-hmm. For good reason. Yeah, it didn't look great. I'm sure Adrian Pilecki... Actually, she would have been a pretty good Wonder Woman. She would have been fine. She would have been fine. Everything else I saw about that show looked terrible. That costume needed work. That costume looked worse than fucking Wonder Woman costumes you can get down from Spirit of Halloween. Okay, I would not go that far, but... <laughs> And it definitely looked worse than the porn parody version, but. I've not seen that. I actually but... only know that because I heard a podcast bring it up and they, up on their website, they put up stills of side by side. It was really funny. But I have read articles before about the like weird amount of effort they put into costuming of porn like, comic book porn parodies. That's... It's insane. That's a different... No, we're not doing an episode on that. That's a, that's a different podcast. Uh, that's General Nerdery After Dark. Hard pass. <laughs> hard pass. That's all the news I have. Okay, that's great. Let's take a break. Let's run away from this conversation as quickly as we can. So... When we did Guards, Guards, admittedly the reason I pushed for us to do that book was so we could do this book. Then I had the thought of, we should do Men at Arms so we can do the next book. So apparently, I just it's straight up me being like, I need more people to talk to about this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's okay. The only reason we haven't touched on Dresden again yet is because we're waiting for the next book to come out because I, I devoured the newest one as quick as I could so that I could tell you we need to wait. Cause it's kind of only part one. Yeah, no, that's fine. I'm a hundred percent down. And then, you know, we'll eventually get to other nerd books, well, but we've done Dragonlance. It's we not like Dragon we haven't, Lance. it's not like we're only doing two series. <laughs> I'm just, I keep imagining that there's somebody <laughs> complaining that we are already back on disc world when we haven't touched on, so many things but that's why we do this weekly so that we (laughs) can continue to touch on things as we fucking get to them anyway i don't know why i'm imagining that you're fucking what somebody out there just your anxiety is popping up Uh, i mean if you have episodes you want us to cover talk to us yeah tell us about it we'll fucking i've done it before until then we're just going to keep doing Discworld. Welcome to General Nerdery, a Discworld fucking podcast. <laughs> I mean, you're joking, but they can't see the big ass smile that went on my face when they said that. That's uh... we could just plan like a Discworld month sometime. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, just like one from each of the like major storyline books, so, like one with the wizards, one with the witches. One... Never mind. Never mind. We'll, figure, we'll figure it out sometime. Not worried about it. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about Men at Arms. So this is the fifteenth Discworld book. It came out in 1993, I believe. 
Yes. Uh, obviously written by Terry Pratchett because Discworld. And it is the second book in the Night Watch series. What number book was Guards, Guards? Eight or nine, somewhere okay. around that. Um, and I don't think Guards, Guards was intended to start off start, anything. But he just went, oh, shit. And he's talked about this. Part of the problem he had with his invention of the watch was it made it hard to do stories in Ankh-Morpork without the watch being a part of it because they were such a... It, if he wasn't using them, it quickly became, well, why isn't the watch involved? Right. And f- kind of from this point on, if you're doing something in Ankh-Morpork, the watch is going to appear somewhere. Nobby Nobs is in Hogfather. Uh, Detritus is in The Truth. Cheery, who we haven't met yet, is also in The Truth. Uh, Carrot is in several of them. Mm-hmm. But what I like about this book is... I really like Guards Guards. It's a good, fun book, but it was definitely a weird little standalone story. This is where he goes, oh, I have something here, and really starts to build. And it is one of the earliest books of his that I've read that really starts to dive into social commentary in a way that his earlier books haven't. And I haven't read all previous of the 14 books before this, so it could have started earlier, but, you know... He's made excellent books, but this is the one where we're really starting to comment, as I said in the beginning of this, we're starting to look more at racism. We're starting to look more at, like, you know, what is a corrupt or incompetent police force versus what should police be. Mm-hmm. So before I say anything else, mm-hmm. it's Terry Pratchett. This book is on, like, this book's like a 9 out of 10 easy, no matter what else I say. Yeah. That being said, this is the hardest time I've ever had getting through a Terry Pratchett book because of the themes and how timely they are with the news. That's super fair. And I didn't even really intend that when I picked this. I was like, I fucking love Men at Arms. Let's read Men at Arms. And also, I, I've i read enough Terry Pratchett that I feel like I, I know where everything goes. But this is also a book where it was kind of obvious at times that... It was being written by an old white guy in the early 90s. Yes, that is definitely true. And one of the things I kind of want to talk about on this. But I did have the thought, because I have been having a lot of trouble with police-based media recently. Mm -hmm. And The Watch is one of the few that I don't have much of a problem with. Uh, And a friend named who calls herself Cohen, actually off Cohen the Barbarian from Mm. Discworld, was like, well... The reason why is Vimes is a believer in all cops are bastards. He just thinks they should be bastards for the little people. And so there's something about, I mean, Vimes, like a major part of this is Vimes wants to be a good cop in a world where it's not really allowed to. And between him and Carrot, they just kind of tear down the old to build new here Mm -hmm. and drag the idea of a police force kicking and screaming out of corruption and incompetence. Uh, But yes, this book uses different species to discuss racism a lot. It is a common science fiction and fantasy trope. And there are times where it works really well. And there are times where it really doesn't work. In this book and in other stuff. This time I'd say it works more than it doesn't because it's obvious what he's trying to do. But there's... 
nuances that maybe weren't thought of yet, but as it's been more of a discussion today, kind of stuck out to me, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Is there a particular one that you want to... Man, there was, there was a couple weird things. Like, first off, none of it really... It feels like it's the first third of the book where he's really obvious about the fact that he's doing this and the the bringing up of affirmative action and stuff and then as the actual like murder mystery plot goes into full swing which was amazing by oh the, the murder mystery is one of the best parts of this. and his writing on it like felt cinematic like it built a an amazing movie in my head as i was as i was reading it but everything kind of gets subtly pushed to the background a little bit and he starts to come on, comment on it in a lot subtler ways while the murder mystery comes back to the front and it you don't feel a lot of conclusion or get a lot it like is, it seems like they're doing things for not great reasons it's something i've noticed about terry pratchett in some of his social commentary is as as amazing as his writing is, he doesn't always stick the landing on the commentary, and part of it's because he's a well-to-do white British man. Um, like, and there's like things like Vimes's Vimes's moment of clarity of realizing how inherently speciest the upper classes and their approach and how they think of everyone lower than them is kind of ensconced in him uh, being like, they have no right to hate them. I hate them because I know them. I, I specifically wanted to talk about this scene. Uh, He's like, it's okay because I know them that I continue to put them into like, and that I continue to be to racist. Stereotype. Them. Yes. Uh, I, I think that's a really important scene because one thing I noticed, particularly in this listen through, is all of the characters, all of our heroes in this, specifically the four we've already met, are utterly stuck in their own privilege and racism. Every one of them in subtle, different ways. And I think one of the things I like and especially having read multiple Discworld or multiple watch books where the characters grow more than anywhere else in the Discworld books of what I've read so far mm -hmm. is you see them in kind of the stages of learning to be a good ally, learning to be helpful. Vimes is utterly disgusted with other people's racism, but completely blind to his own. Oh, it's okay because I've had to deal with you know, dwarves being shitty or trolls being shitty. And I'm with them. And over time it changes. Uh, and that doesn't forgive his behavior and it doesn't make what he's saying here. Okay. Cause as I said, he immediately turns around or the like, it's okay. I don't like anyone much. Those are really common early stages of confronting your own privilege. So if you write it or if you take it as, you know, wow, he just sucks and doesn't like, or like Terry saying this is okay, then it's super problematic. But if you look at it and I, you haven't read the later book, so obviously right. I'm going to have a different perspective from you. And I'm not trying to tell you you're wrong here. It is really interesting to watch Vimes grow from bit to bit to bit. And you still see those really ingrained things because 
Ingrained racism is a thing. Studies have shown it affects people of color even. Like, their own perceptions, not just yeah. shitting on them. Um, so there is a thing about being an ally and having to continually readjust your own thoughts. And I think in several ways, this is the book where it starts to actively make Vimes affect his own thought. Because at first, he's told, I guess we haven't even said this, the book starts with the watch has been expanded and they have expanded to specifically a dwarf, a troll. And how open do we want to be about this? It's 1993. We've already kind of touched in on like the themes of the book. And a werewolf and undead, which they don't reveal for the first like half of the part of the book. Every, yeah, we, well, we find out she's a werewolf kind of early on, but everyone assumes that she was included because because she's she's female. Um, and at first Vimes is real mad about this, but by the end of it, uh, not as much in this one. Carrot has a lot more in this one as Vimes is figuring out his own shit mm-hmm. in a really interesting storyline, I thought. <laughs> um, by the end, they're realizing that like, oh shit, my views are wrong here. And I think, so I think this, like I said, this book is more good than bad on the whole. Because I do feel like it's pretty obvious through the book that these characters are on a journey. Mm -hmm. And I do know that there's books that come after, and I assume that they continue on their journey. I just, I guess I feel like the story also needs to be self-contained enough that none of them feel like they get rebuked for what they do in this book. That is absolutely true. And I'm I'm sorry, I got real defensive there. (laughs) No, I love these books. Uh... But that is definitely a thing where you're like, oh, no, this isn't landing where you want it to. Like, there's a line, and they're talking about a character named Mayonnaise Quirk. Oh, I saved a, this line. Who's just a complete piece of shit. Uh, uh, I actually saved this one. Okay, go this ahead one... and give this line real quick, because we're going to talk about a line that Terry wrote that does not land. It doesn't land because of how this starts. Because it's one of his long, drawn-out paragraphs mm-hmm. that were, if you've read a lot of Perry, Terry Pratchett, you're used to. You run into a description that's a paragraph that is really, truly all one thought, and it's in his writing style, right? So it starts with, Quirk wasn't actually a bad man. He didn't have the imagination. He dealt more in the sort of generalized low-grade unpleasantness, which slightly tarnishes the soul of all who come into contact with it. Many da-da-da-da-da. He continues... Mm-hmm. It gets to the end of that thought process. Uh, But Quirk was the kind of man to whom it comes naturally to pronounce the word Negro with two G's. Which, when you start with he's not a bad man, it's a... It is a thing that I think was really prevalent in the 90s when we were trying to say we were past racism. Is that you're not bad if you're still racist, necessarily. You're just lazy and stupid. And you know what? Racism and laziness and stupidity, definitely, they go hand in hand a lot. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't... If you're hella racist, if you're openly racist, like Quirk is, who is just drops racial slurs, and they're about trolls and dwarves, but... They're slurs they're, in universe. They're absolutely slurs. Then he's a bad man. Like, and I get what they are trying to say. He is not acting... They're saying he's not actively malicious, but passively malicious 
in his position. Especially in a position of he's commander of the day watch isn't better. No. In some ways it's worse. Um, before we dive into this, I just wanted to, cause I wrote down how privilege shows through with all of the main characters here. Vimes, as we're talking about, Vimes has class awareness up the wazoo, but he doesn't recognize his own privilege in the ways that he discusses it. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, it, it's okay that I have these issues with trolls and dwarves because they give me a headache as a police officer, which major policing issues going into that train of thought in the first place. Um, and, you know, I am also one of the poor, so I am with them in it, missing the different issues that they have to deal with. Uh, you know, but the, the scene where he decides to manipulate the racism of the upper class into revealing how stupid it is, is a brilliantly written scene. It just, his justifications for it, as we said, where he's like, I've got a right, doesn't land. Mm -hmm. Carrot, who is, Carrot's whole thing is that he is nice to everyone, that he accepts everyone. But then he just casually picks up, without even really being aware of it, Vimes's issues with the undead. Vimes's racism against the undead. Because he has that line of... They're not, they're just not our kind of people in the very beginning when he's talking about the undead mm -hmm. and he says it to someone who's not undead and he doesn't realize it and he should have been called out for that. And he never does. There's never really a moment, particularly in this book where the fact that carrot drops some really nasty shit that he starts to get over by the end. Carrot's a weird case though. Um, considering due to his lineage, how much reality kind of warps around him. Yes, but I think it's just worth He knowing. should still get called out in some way, but it's really hard to do in-universe, considering his presence literally commands obedience. Mm -hmm. um, without giving away too much, he gets called out a little more in the next book in ways that I really value. Uh, I really like Engua in this book, but I like Engua and Carrot both more. Now that they're a couple, mm -hmm. because they balance each other in ways that they otherwise wouldn't. Because Anger was a cynic, and Carrot is Carrot. But it, I think it's interesting because he picks, he looks up to Vimes so much that without even realizing it, he has picked up some of Vimes's uh, bad parts too. Mm -hmm. And later on, it's made a big thing about how. Those kinds of people is such a such a gross fucking phase that it's really disconcerting to hear Carrot say that. And I think that was on purpose. I just don't think they ever called it out. And then, you know, Nobby and Colin are both just too dumb and lazy and cowardly to confront their own racism, their own mm -hmm. issues. Nobby accepts that the tr uh, when a troll is arrested that he must be guilty or at least guilty of something because he's a troll. He doesn't even stop and think about it because challenging that perception would be too, it would require more bravery than Nobby tends to have. And for Colin, he's just he's just the old dumb white guy, honestly, mm -hmm. and completely falls for it. 
And I love all of these characters, but like to love these characters, I have to stop and examine and like Colin is kind of everything that's wrong with the police force in a lot of ways. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. He's old, ingrained to this is how we used to do it. I'm too lazy and dumb to change my... God, I'm letting my views shine through today. <laughs> uh, to, to face the inconsistencies. But we haven't actually talked about the stories. So let's talk about where this story starts off. Because as we said, there is so much to like in this story. It's just written by a white guy from an imperialist country in 1993. There's Actually, some stuff that doesn't fly. Can I complain about one Please last do. thing so that we can move on to the happy stuff? Yes. So that, yeah. I'd rather just, I'd lump it no, all no, together. No, let's get it out of the way. This is also good conversations to have. I'm yelling. And we've already, we've already given some spoilers, so I'm not. Mm -hmm. Also, um, the way that they finally pull all of the watch together in the end is basically emphasizing that they're now all blue lives. Yeah. The idea of there's no... When they really need to be both. Although I kind of let that slide a little bit in my mind because the actions that they were actually taking were using those people to do a more neighborhood sort of policing <sighs> that where they could use the talents to keep better in touch with the actual needs of the neighborhoods. So... I want to start my reply with actual, I absolutely agree with you. And I had heard but the like, actual text is there, there's not, no there's everyone's just a watchman now. A there's watchman. no dwarves in the watch. Mm -hmm. There's no trolls in the watch. We're just watch. Yes, one that can be an incredibly dangerous view in policing when when we're policemen first before anything else. Two, it does really fit into the I don't see color thought of the 90s that was really well-intentioned, but really doesn't yeah, no, work. That's not the way to do it. I do think that one of the minor storylines that I wish they had talked about a little more loudly because it could have helped balance some of that is that when they try to force Cuddy and Detritus and Angua to be Watchmen in the classic style, you know, we use these weapons, we do these things. It goes terribly. <laughs> they, they have that training montage at the beginning, and none of them can fucking do it right. Right. But when they let them be watchmen as trolls, as dwarves, as uh, as werewolves, they're an incredibly effective combination. When, when they let Detritus be the siege engine that is having a troll in the watch, or letting Cuddy be clever and use his axe instead of, you know, forcing him to try to fight the way a human would mm -hmm. or letting Angua use being a werewolf. Just Angua's werewolf seems one just right off. I just fucking love lets them, lets them be effective as characters and lets them come together and be actually good watchmen. They would not have been able to solve this mystery without all three of them being who they are being trolls, dwarves, and werewolves. But at the same time, you're a hundred percent right that saying, you know, we're all watchmen. There is <laughs> uh, ooh. Ooh, Terry, no. <laughs> that doesn't. Uh also hadn't thought about it, but you mentioning Detritus basically being a siege engine could bring up some like militarization of police issues, and they do strong arm their way through some situations in this book, but actually like, I'm way more okay with that just because I'm so familiar with 
what a fucking cesspool Ankh-Morpork Park is. Like, completely understand they're actually doing this probably the most peaceful way they possibly could. The closest I'm coming to forgiving on that is the only thing they really see Genjin through is other corrupt police. That's, yeah. Like, and that's another real dangerous thing of, you know, uh, you could take that thought process in really terrible directions. And it does, again, I'm going to talk about later books. They really do bring up, like, people refer to Vimes as military in one of the later books. And they're like, you know, as opposed to civilians. And he's like, we are civilians. Mm -hmm. Vimes is rabidly anti-police as military, which is one of the reasons I kind of forgive Vimes. Yeah. While still calling him out. And it, it, I also, Vimes is super aware of the tightrope that he walks in a way that we're not usually allowed to see. The Discworld books don't necessarily, they don't fetishize the police. Not, yeah, not quite. They, if anything, it fetishizes the type of stories that the, the police are usually used in. Yeah, I'll give it that. Uh... Because there is there is appeal to police procedurals. I mean, I'm still enjoying Brooklyn Nine-Nine and... Okay, so I don't enjoy Blue Bloods at all anymore. Uh, Cece's mom watches it. Mm. And at first I was like, all right, this doesn't always land, but like it's compelling TV now. I'm just like, you all are terrible. No. Um, all right, let's get on to what we liked. Okay, yes. <laughs> Start of this book... The world has completely changed, but in very small ways. Like, they're talking about how everything is completely different for the Watch now after they stopped the dragon. But really what it is, is they hired three new people. <laughs> they are now up to seven Watchmen, and it's going to be six soon, because Vimes is about to marry our queen, Lady Sybil Rankin. Yeah. I love her so much. I wish she would have been in this more. She is... She is underused. She's... I don't think she gets a really major role until Thud. And she's so good in Thud, uh, which is several books down the line. A huge weakness of the Discworld is that Sybil never gets her own book. Mm -hmm. Like, she's such a strong character in every moment with her is pure gold. But she doesn't always... We don't get enough of her ever. And it is hard when you are the one character who's not in... The Watch, who's in a watch book. Right, right. I guess let's talk about the first, the the three new hires first. We've mentioned them all, but we haven't. First, we have Detritus, who has come up in Discworld books before, but has never been a, a character of much note. I like Detritus quite a bit. Um, I, I'm more like <laughs> the, the fucking, the, the troll brain heat. Thing. The biology of trolls is so cool. Was so cool. Was um, so cool. It's a great bit of world building. So Detritus is a troll. He's appeared. He actually appeared in Guards Guards, but momentarily. Mm. He was Detritus the Splatter. He was a bouncer for the Mended Drum. Before oh, this, he's fuck. the troll okay, yeah. that uh, Carrot, Carrot knocks out in the very beginning in one of the earlier scenes in Guards Guards. And Nobby tries to kick him in the nuts and hurts his own foot because it turns out 
or kick him in the rocks is how they put it. Right. In this and detritus is made of stone, so that goes terribly. Surprised no, not if he get his leg that high. Yeah, well, I mean, I think he was passed out, but uh, <laughs> uh, detritus has joined the police because his girlfriend Ruby says he has to smarten up and can't just be basically a like low level crime stooge. Detritus has to deal with the fact that everyone thinks trolls are dumb. And he has been raised to be to believe that trolls are dumb. Like cuz the trolls kind of think that too. Which is great commentary actually on how we like bring people down to believe that they're dumb and they start to believe the own stereotypes against them. Minor quibble with the fact that there's a great bonding moment with Cuddy teaching him, uh -huh. only for it to be kind of undermined a little bit by learning it's mostly biology. I get that. That's I can see that. Although, he, he learns to count before any of the biology stuff comes in. Right. Cuddy teaches him to count. So it turns out trolls... But then you find out just learning numbers leads to him just in the cold being able to do calculus and beyond troll brains overheat so if it gets cold the smarter they are or the colder it gets the smarter they are the hotter it gets the dumber they go to the point that they eventually just kind of like curl up and turn into a boulder for until it cools down again uh, silicon based brain it's basically a computer chip because they're made of rocks mm -hmm. yeah uh and he is in a great bonding moment he is taught to count count add. And you get a wonderful thing because he counts in a factor of two instead of a factor of ten. Mm -hmm. So he's like, how many are there? And he goes, two fours, which is four groups of two. So uh, for, you know, eight, as, you know, which 40 is, you know, four tens. But then he gets stuck in a place where it gets cold and he... Starts to uncover, like, he the mathematically covers <laughs> yeah, everything. I can see that. I can see your... I'm sorry. You, I am being so defensive anytime <laughs> you critique. I love this book too much to do this episode. <laughs> um, It wasn't the biggest thing. Like, it was still a really, really sweet moment because... In those moments, he truly was having a hard time, so it was a buddy helping him out, but... It is the danger... the biology bit... It, it is the danger of using... And I'll bring this up when we get to Angua, too. And not just the biology bit, but when all, you're already using a phrenologist as a joke. Is racism as a species thing? I'll get to your phrenology mm -hmm. thing. I just want to finish this thought before I forget it. Uh, when using racism as a species thing... When it turns out that they actually have, you know, real biological differences as opposed to my skin is a different color, it does change the it game does change a it. little bit. So it makes it a little harder for the points to land in the same way. Um, he does. They do make a joke about phrenology of. Although that was actually pretty funny. It's a pretty good joke and it's absolutely mocking phrenology. Mm -hmm. uh, phrenology, for those of you who don't know, is a super racist pseudoscience that was big in the like Victorian era up to early 20th century. You still see bits of it today. We just find different words for it with the idea that if you, you can track a person's personality based off the shape of their head, but it turns out that all of the bad things that they were saying are like proven is basically the slight differences of someone from Africa versus someone from Europe. Right. 
it, it real was, famous scene involving phrenology and Django Unchained. Yeah, it's hella racist. It was used to justify really terrible behaviors. But the joke is that the people of Ankh-Morpork have decided that, okay, if this is what it is, that phrenology means you can change or that you can determine someone's personality based off their head shape, then if you alter the shape of their head, you'll change their personality. So they hit so you with a hammer. in for decisiveness. <laughs> and he just gets beat with a hammer in the head a couple of times. Uh, it's a great joke about how remarkably stupid phrenology is. But again, Terry Pratchett, sometimes gets too caught up in his own, like, I'm being subtle with this and forgets to actually, like, make the actual statement being like, no, this is bad. Right. Uh, th this is dumb and, like, it should be treated as dumb. Overall, I really liked it, though, because I thought the troll <laughs> biology was really fucking cool. It's so cool. Uh, this is the first time where we start to learn bits about trolls and dwarves. We learn much more Coombe Valley, which they mention here, becomes a major plot point in the later Discworld books. I think it's been mentioned before a few times. But, yeah. Even pretty early on. But he starts to really dive into the dwarves and the trolls in the in the watch books, mm -hmm. which is real fascinating. It, it comes up in other books, too, but those are the ones that, like, Thud is entirely about troll and dwarves. And Vimes just kind of is stuck in the middle. Mm -hmm. uh, which kind of, I guess, brings us to Cuddy, who is a dwarf that wants to come be a watchman because he was unhappy in his job basically making fortune cookies, but fortune rats. <laughs> which is awesome. <laughs> so good. Um, so my other least favorite part of this book was that Cuddy was my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And then Cuddy, we've already mentioned spoilers, dies. Cuddy dies. Block. And I kind of knew that one of them was always going to die. And I have to admit that Cuddy's the one that if I had to lose one of them is the one I'm most comfortable with losing. But I was so mad when it See, happened. See, I thought they were going to throw a, a colon dies. Yeah. Okay. So I guess when I was like, for some reason, I knew it was going to be one of the three new characters the the classic four never feel super at risk to me in any of these books, mm. even though they fucking almost like bad things happens to them constantly. Mm -hmm. um, Colin would have been someone we absolutely could have afforded to lose. And Colin gets more and more from this book on gets more and more difficult to use because, as I said, he's just kind of too dumb to realize his own yeah. inconsistencies and he gets better, but he just never really gets over it. Gotcha. I'm um, revealing too much, but it's... Eh, no, it's fine. I fucking... I dug Cuddy. Cuddy is great. And just how fucking good he was with the axe. He was... I mean, one of the things is when you first see Cuddy, he's trying to use a sword and an arrow, and he can't... Or in a bow and arrow, and he can't. He's just awful at it. He can't, doesn't know how to use a sword. He can't figure out aiming with an arrow to save his goddamn life. And they're like, I thought dwarves were supposed to be great warriors. He's like, yeah, but our kind of war. <laughs> and when anytime he picks up an ax, there's a, there's a scene and it's a throwaway scene where there's a fly flying around and without even looking, he flicks an ax and cuts it in half. Well, it's, <laughs> it's all, it's almost even better because 
the way that scene actually plays out is that that was a joke like 30 like 30 pages prior mm -hmm. and then the description on that is so minimal but because there was already a joke about it you already know what happened yeah he is it was such good writing cuddy is a truly excellent dwarf and i really love the discworld dwarfs i love dwarves in general but the discworld ones especially as we develop more there's something really interesting about them and he is someone who was like, well, fuck, this is no kind of life. I'm just making cookies, making rat, because rat is the primary diet of dwarves, which makes sense living in mountains. And I appreciate that he managed to down three rats before making his, getting his head out of... Uh, cut me on throat dibblers uh, barrel cart. Yep. Uh, yeah, he... I, again, great to see Dibbler again. Dibbler is, there's, I, I don't have anything to say past that. I just, anytime I see him, Dibbler makes me smile. Well, and they had a great setup and payoff between Dibbler and, and Cuddy just in the text with when, when Dibbler was describing the con, or when it was the description of Dibbler's contents of his cart mm -hmm. and they were talking about the rats and the need for ketchup. Uh, <laughs> and then way later on, when you have Detritus and Cuddy stuck underground and he's bitching about fucking digging out, he's like, you're stuck down here with rats. And Cuddy's like, like, maybe there's an maybe. appeal. <laughs> he's like, without ketchup. I was like, oh shit, we got to start. Time cutting. to go. <laughs> I, I wonder hilarious. if you're going to discuss racism, having one of the major races you're talking about eat rats. Like, if I'm going to think too heavily into this, that might be a questionable thing. But again, it was... You it, could make arguments there, I'm sure, but it's a dwarf. I don't care. Yeah, it doesn't feel wrong. That is me being crazy nitpicky because I'm trying to look at this critically. Uh, dwarf culture is really cool, and it's very willing to make jokes while telling serious things. It doesn't come up too much here. We get... Dwarves still have no concept of, like, sarcasm or sense of humor. So if you tell them something, they take it extremely literally. Uh, and they... I do love the line, and it comes up in later books. If they're like, you guys really do love gold. And goes, of course not. We just say that to get into bed with us. <laughs> so good. Like, Cuddy, are you fucking your gold? <laughs> like, so good. Are, are you just, like... No, just we're going to leave that thought behind. Oh, I love Carrot still writing letters just while I'm thinking about dwarves. Carrot is so good. He's such a good boy. Carrot's a really interesting one while talking about dwarves of he almost in some ways he's kind of a discussion of mixed race children. In other ways, I think in more accurate ways, he's a discussion of Adoptive. being adopted into a different culture. Mm -hmm. But some of the issues are similar enough that I think I could see it being taken either way. Of both sides have trouble dealing with Carrot's dwarven heritage. And if he had just been a human that decided he liked dwarven life better, it would have been super problematic. But a character raised to be a dwarf who isn't a dwarf is a really interesting. Yeah. I don't know how to take that. And it's like I said, it's even more interesting because, or less interesting. I don't know. It's harder to talk about because reality kind of warps around him. Yeah. But yes, also it's kind of hard to talk about care. And that really comes up in this one 
But I do, I have heard people talk about how interesting that is because being adopted out of a different culture is definitely a thing. And Absolutely a thing. Finding yourself in that culture, uh, oftentimes it's being adopted into white families and then discovering your own heritage. It doesn't really come up the other way around as much as I've heard, although I'm sure it's also a thing to an extent. I don't know. I am white raised by white people. <laughs> I don't get to yeah. comment on this. I mean, and I was raised multiracial, but it's like his situation is different. It's it's hard. To... It's a situation we don't see very often, though, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Um, and then with Carrot, we come into our third character, Angua, which is a very confusing name. We have she she mentions a couple different things uh, here and there, but compared to everyone else, it's very minuscule, especially because the dwarves and the trolls just as people in this book plays a play a big part because of the mm -hmm. the the situation in the city. Do we ever get more info on werewolves? The fifth elephant, uh, which is one of it's like three or four books down of the watch series. It's like 10 books down of the mm -hmm. other one. Uh, takes place entirely in Uberwald dealing with the werewolves and dealing with Angua's family. Okay. We get a lot of Angua from here on in. Uh, she doesn't get much here because there's already so much happening here. We get a couple of Angua heavy books. Angua's little werewolf bits in this do, though, in this do lead us to fucking poodle Hitler. <laughs> Big poodle Hitler. That's so good. See, I was thinking like Ted or Charles Manson, like poodle, <laughs> poodle Manson. Um, Angua is a werewolf, as we've covered. Through her, we meet the dog world and we get what's actually a return of the character Gaspode, who had appeared previously in the novel Moving Pictures. And he mentions it briefly when he first mentions he's like, uh, last time this happened to me about being able to talk, I ended up saving the world from the dungeon dimension. And when I first heard that, I thought it was just Gaspode being fucking weird. But no, he actually saves the world from the dungeon dimension. Gaspode might have been my least favorite character in the book. That's fair. I mean, somebody has to be a least favorite. You know what I mean? If I had to choose, Gaspode's it's going to be him. kind of obnoxious. And he does have a bit that really doesn't land where he talks about because he talks to Angua about the complicated nature of she's part dog. She's half wolf, half human, which mm, kind of mm -hmm. makes her a dog. Uh, but she, he refers to carrot as her master. And I was like, Whoa, Whoa no gas boat. No, <laughs> no. Okay. So I actually saved a, a little section for as to why I called big Fido fucking, poodle hitler okay because this very real I mean, quick big fido is the head of the dogs guild because everyone has a guild so good when the dogs had the guild what well, was the bad dogs guild mm -hmm. big dogs little dogs fat dogs skinny dogs they all were watching bright-eyed as the poodle talked about destiny capital d mm -hmm. about discipline capital d <laughs> About the capital N, capital S, natural superior, superiority of the canine race. 
about wolves, only a big Fido's vision of wolves weren't wolves as Angua knew them. They were bigger, fiercer, wiser, the wolves of Big Fido's dream. They were the kings of the forest, terrors of the night. They had names like Quick Fang and Silverback. They were what every dog should aspire to. They it really does accurately cover like kind of Hitler's weird fetishization of Aryan culture into things that it absolutely I mean, even like his fetishization of Norse culture of things that it absolutely was not. Right. Uh, and used uh, wolf imagery a lot. That's true. And uh, I definitely, I'm not disagreeing with you on the wolf <laughs> Hitler. Uh, he's a poodle that went nuts and kind of created a cult of all the feral dogs. I did think it was a fun bit of world building. One thing I love about this is this no, book. And he had his comeuppance. Oh, yeah. Bad so that happened. was actually like all satisfying. Uh, one thing I love about men at arms over guards guards is I think it does more world building than guards guards did of mm -hmm. like really getting the flavor of what Ankh Morpork is. And part of that is just the progression of Terry's writing. Uh, it does, I believe, introduce my absolute favorite bit of Discworld world building of like small goofy things, which is bloody stupid Johnson. Oh, okay. Bloody stupid Johnson is an architect slash creator slash builder that everything he builds is just a little bit wrong. It never goes, like, uh, he he goes to build, uh, I don't remember if it's in this one or another one, a trout pond. And it's a beautiful trout pond, except that it's only one foot wide. It's like 50 feet long and one foot wide. So it's just long enough for a single fish to go forward and backwards on. Or... I, his his fuck-ups reminded me of Spinal Tap. Yes, there is something very Spinal Tap about Bloody Stupid Johnson. And he continues in later books. Like, uh, there is at the university a uh, shower room that Ridcully, the archminister, decides to use in Hogfather. And everyone's like, don't use it. And he's like, why not? Because like, it's made by Bloody Stupid Johnson. What's wrong with you? And of course, it goes terribly wrong. It, it just is a good way, especially in later books, as you use him more. I mean, he's a fun, it's like a funny throwaway line in this. But in later books, as you use him more, whenever they're like, here's this kind of deus ex machina machine or this weird whatever we need to use. It was made by bloody stupid Johnson. You just automatically, I can't snap. I don't know why I tried to do that. Um, <laughs> you just automatically, you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, I wanted a book about Bloody Stupid Johnson. Oh, that'd like. be great. Uh, one of my favorite sequences, one of the best bits of fucking dark comedy I've read in a bit is every interaction inside the Fool's Guild. The Fool's Guild is, you can tell Terry Pratchett is legitimately terrified of clowns <laughs> because of the strange way it he deals <sighs> with them. Just the weirdness of like, jokes as ritual in the same way that like we've covered in earlier books with Ankh Morpork there's a thieves guild there's an assassin's guild when they say there's a guild of everything there's a guild of everything there's the fool's guild which is the fool uh, the guild of clowns and is it the first time they go in there in the book like was right after was it Bafo got we see Bino clown, got killed yeah and uh, Bafo takes them into it we see a clown funeral and it involves like Clowns solemnly pouring the ashes of another clown into another clown's pants. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, like all this, you know, they describe it as absolutely horrifying. But it's this really solemn thing while like terrifying slapstick happens 
Uh, it is so amazing. <laughs> it is. I want to see it portrayed live, in live right? action. Yes. And uh, you I really to wanted to see it. the egg room live. It'd be so fucking creepy. It, it is a room where for generations, every clown has been painting their, their face. face onto a dried egg shell. And so you're just seeing lines and lines and lines of clown faces that are just preserved eggs. Oh my God. It's creepy. Uh, and every new face is compared to the ones before it and being like, is this a new face? Like, are you stealing a different clown's face? It's again, these characters commit to in Discworld to everything they do. So entirely in a way that's really interesting. Well, and that was one of the parts also, like, the clown faces and getting into... We already talked about the dwarves, but one of the cool things about this was understanding how different cultures think and respecting the way that they look at the world is part of how they put this together. Mm -hmm. That was cool. When you look at things from a clown's point of view, the things the clown is telling you makes more sense. Right. When you look at things from the dwarves, uh, there is, as we mentioned in this, a murder mystery happening through the whole thing. We're not diving too deeply into it. Someone is killing people with the gun. The gun was weird. The gun, the gun was super weird. I don't think Terry likes guns much, although in later uh, books, he is very pro owning weaponry. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think he did want to examine, and I think it's a real thing to talk about. And I'm, I don't personally like guns. I am not against gun ownership, which is a fine line to walk in today's politics. Mm-hmm. But there are people, because when you pick up the gun in this one, it kind of takes you over. And I can see, especially how the first gun created, how that could happen. But also, I've met people who got into gun culture and just disappeared. They stopped being a person. They just became a gun fan. And it happens with all sorts of cultures, but it's real kind of scary when it's something that is a tool for killing. Right. For whatever else a gun is, it is designed to kill. The, the only thing I didn't like about it was the sort of possession. A- the possession aspect was a good commentary on kind of use of power and feelings of power and corruption from that and shit. But it also like kind of forgave the people from their actions a little bit. Cause it is a little guns. Don't kill people. People kill people, which is not technically wrong, but also we should examine sometimes maybe what people have guns. I mean, I own a gun, Something about my family owns a gun. So it's not that like I'm not, as I said, I'm not anti-gun. I'm not diving into that. I'm never diving into that politics on this show, but, (laughs) um, well, that's like, yeah, I grew up with gun. I was given my first gun at five years old. I really fucking love guns. Uh, I do think that things need to be in place better than they are in a big, bad way. We don't need to go into all those specifics. It's weird. And we'll just say that. But it's that's weird the thing, like, growing up maybe gun with can... guns made me feel weird about this, because it, it felt like it was shirking a lot of responsibility in a lot of ways. That's fair. Again, it's another one of those things where using analog to talk about things 
is a good thing, but sometimes it really falls apart. Mm -hmm. Talking about the gun basically possessing people is a really interesting way of talking about how personalities disappear and how the moment... I mean, I mean, there's studies to show that if you have a gun with you when a circumstance goes down, the chance of it ending badly increases dramatically. That's not to say don't own guns. That is to say we need to own and confront that fact. I am super going into gun debate here on a podcast right after I said I wasn't going to do it. Um, but it is kind of part of this book where they're talking about the gun. Uh, it does actually make me think of another place where this kind of falls apart. Carrot, uh, the, the idea of, you know, uh, using subtext to talk about real world mm -hmm. issues and falling apart in science fiction and fantasy. Carrot hooks up with Angua. And admittedly, Angua has a little emotional weight carrying with Carrot more than I like sometimes. But they, as I said, they do generally balance each other pretty well. Uh, and then she, he still doesn't know she's a werewolf. And she, he finds out when the moon falls across the bed while she's sleeping in the bed and he's not in it. And she turns into a wolf automatically. Mm -hmm. And he freaks out. And they're like, oh, hey, Carrot. But you know what? If I had just slept with someone turned around, turned back around, and that person's now gone and a wolf is there? I don't think grabbing the sword next to me is a completely unreasonable response there. Right. I don't think so either. Like, and that's where it falls, you know, if you hook up with someone and then find out their whatever thing and, uh, and you pick up a weapon in the real world, that's not good. But... But somebody's not going to turn into a wolf. Yes, but if someone turns into a wolf all of a sudden, my, oh shit, defensive reaction, that's that's some primal shit that I am not going to hold against them right now. And then, like, Gaspode kind of points that out, but it does make the analogy a little Weird. weak. Yeah. This book is really good. We're going to talk about everything wrong with it. <laughs> That's okay. It's not a bad thing. It is good. I mean, we talked about with your fave is problematic. It is a good thing to examine critically the things that you love. It's essential to examine critically the things you love. Well, and if it was bad, I wouldn't think about it this much. Mm -hmm. And like, we didn't really do this with Pokemon because it turns out there's not a whole lot of depth to Pokemon as much as we've done now two episodes on how we love it. Mm-hmm. Terry has shit to say, which means that we have to examine the shit he's, he has to say to see what we agree with and see what we don't. Well, and the book is actively trying to say something. Yes. And it's obvious. So, And it's why I love it so much, but it does mean if we're going to discuss it, we have to discuss the message. Mm -hmm. Messages. There's so many messages in this. I was going to say, overall, like I said, I do think it mostly lands. He's really good at writing, and you understand where the characters are coming from and that they're growing. From a murder mystery point, from a, like, police procedural point, there's almost none that lands better. From a point of, let's examine the watches in such a weird place here, because by the end of the book, they actually have a watch. They're actually going to have some power to affect change in the way that they want to mm -hmm. and do some good. At the beginning of, especially in, like, Guards, Guards, they had no power. They were nothing. And they're right in this position in the middle now of they've saved the city. People can't just write them off. But they're still too small, too shat on, too everything to really do much of anything. And it's a really interesting place to find your characters. Like, oh, we can do good, but we're still not set up to do good. 
And Vimes, as I said, he's going to retire at the end. He's supposed to retire at the end of the book. He's just supposed to marry Sybil and become basically a rich gentleman of leisure. And you're like, well, that's never going to happen. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I remember reading someone who was reviewing this book chapter by chapter being like, oh, I'm going to be so sad to see Vimes go. And you're like, are you really buying that, man? Like, uh, Vimes is des- is not designed to be someone to not do anything. Right. His his anger at injustice of the universe would make him explode. He's already uh, Sybil talks about it once he does briefly retire of her being really worried because what attracted him to her or her to him to her. Yes, uh, (laughs) is his kind of simmering anger at the universe and how he wants to fix it all. You take that away from him. Who is Vimes? Mm -hmm. And a big part of him is examining that and examining that. He can't drink. Not just like he was drinking too much. He can't drink. Vimes is an alcoholic. It was good character. I, I This felt weird, not in a bad way, like a critique way. It mm-hmm. just felt weird to see him drinking as much as he ended up drinking throughout this novel. Yes. It does strike me as familiar with friends I have that have tried to drink, but or tried to quit drinking, Mm -hmm. tried to drink is a completely different situation. Tried to quit drinking and not have it work. Like they fall off the wagon. Um, I I would have done a little, I think here's the thing. I think it felt weird because we don't usually see characters in fiction. Once they get clean, fall back off the wagon. Yes. And when it is, it's treated as this like ultimate crisis point Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, no dude, you can't, keep doing this, mm-hmm. especially now that he has unlimited money, he would have just drank himself to, to death. It is interesting to watch here. And again, it comes up more, as I said, a lot of this book is prep and it's part of the beautiful thing about books where character or series where characters grow. Cause each book is kind of prepped for the next book. Watching Vimes learn how to deal with, you know, alcoholism even and go from like, no, I just need to like not drink as much. Like, no, I literally can't drink. We're just repeating this point now. I'm sorry. I love trying to do the fucking them trying to do the math on what how much of the the coffee to it, give. Yeah, them. the 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 oh, coffee shit, to we booze ratio because the running theory is Vimes is always a little bit not drunk. Like he's he they describe him as too under par compared to everyone else, so he has to drink just to catch up to everyone else's level of sobriety. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the problem is he could never get the gauge right. And it's Vimes. Vimes drinks to cover his anger and when it, to deal with his anger. And when his anger gets too strong here is where he pops. Mm-hmm. But again, you get very interesting bits of world building. You get the beautiful. It is my favorite example of dealing with classism is the Vimes Boots theory of socioeconomics. Oh, I can't believe I almost forgot to bring that up because that that's something that I think a lot of people are actually familiar with, even if they've never read this book. I didn't realize that this was the book that that came from. It, I do see memes about it a lot. It's the idea uh, that it is expensive to be poor. Yeah, well, I think somebody tweeted it out like three years ago and every, oh, I don't know, eight months or so, it makes the rounds again. Mm-hmm. And one of those times was actually just like two weeks ago. Yeah, I did see it recently, too. But the idea is cheap boots cost $10. Expensive boots cost $50. Now, in this world, they make like 30 bucks a month, so they don't make a ton of money. 
the idea is if you buy expensive boots, your boots will last you for years. But if you buy cheap boots, you can afford to eat that month. But those boots wore, wear out within a year while the expensive boots will last 10 years. So 10 years later, the rich person has only spent 50 bucks. But the poor person who has to replace his boots every year has now spent $100 on boots and his feet are still wet. It is the most brilliant and short. It's only like two paragraphs long and then they move on. Explanation of how expensive it is to be poor. And I imagine Terry Pratchett at some point in his life must have been poor because I have never... He gets it in a way that I think a lot of people don't. In ways that even when I got it, I didn't register it. Right. No, it's fucking great. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. When I ran into that, I was like, oh, shit. This is oh, this yeah. Book. Yeah. I I'd read it, too. I forgot. I thought it was uh, Feet of Clay for some reason. But mm. either way, uh, Vimes is obsessed with cheap boots after this because he can feel the feel of the uh, he can tell where he is in Ankh Pork by the feel of the cobble through his boots. Yep. And it becomes a like ongoing battle with his wife from now on. Cause she keeps wanting to buy him nice expensive boots. And he's like, no, <laughs> I can't tell where I am through those boots. <laughs> Vimes oh, is a class warrior who becomes rich. It's awkward. When I love carrot recounting when they found, was it carrot that recounted when they found the piece of cardboard and he's like, there's a yeah. hundred souls in this. <laughs> yeah. This will last me months. Um, <laughs> Which is interesting. I've never thought about that before, but I do have shoes. I'm like, oh, those are terrible cardboard soles, aren't they? Yeah. It turns out that every set of nonstick shoes ever made pretty much sucks. Uh, yeah. I cardboarded. I had a cardboard my soles once back when I worked at Kmart. I remember those days. Yeah, no, we've all done terrible things, but it, uh... Sucked. It, yeah, <laughs> it, it sucks to be poor. This is why you guys should pay us money to make this. Not going into that. Uh, <laughs> Give us your money. Anyway. Fuck, what else do we have? What have we talked about? What haven't we talked about? Again? We haven't really talked about the murder mystery itself yet, but I don't really want to talk about the murder mystery itself. I don't want to go into it. Itself. I don't want to have to explain it all. And I thought it was a really good fake out when you found out that it was Edward that they found. Yeah. Um, they're... There's lots of interesting stuff. We we get an interesting look into the Assassin's Guild in a way that we hadn't too much before. Pyramids talked about it a bit, but... I thought the Fool's stuff was cooler than the, the Assassin's Guild. The Fool's Guild stuff. is super interesting. A later book makes a throwaway reference to battle clowning. And I desperately want to know everything about that. Oh my god, that's awesome. Yes! <laughs> What? <laughs> yes. Battle clowning. I want to do that in D&D. Oh, battle clowns. Oh, it'd be awful. And fantastic. Yeah, no, the, the murder mystery I thought was actually really cool and played out really cinematically, and there's parts are really good. De well, he doesn't write the best action, but, like, the way it flows is really quick and action-y, so... You can tell he doesn't care as much about the action. Mm -hmm. So when the action comes up, it's not, you know, like... When Dragonlance was doing action, it would go into pages worth of stuff. He wants it, wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. He finds every excuse to not have to, ex to include the action. Mm -hmm. And it's part of what makes his book so great that it subverts things, and it's so... Uh, it's fantasy that's so fantasy about the characters and stuff, but he still does good action when needed. 
mm-hmm. and good world building better than almost any other fantasy series. I've heard people argue that Discworld isn't fantasy and bull shit. <laughs> uh, da Vinci was good. Dequirm. Yeah. Leonard Dequirm, the most dangerous man in the world uh, with his complete inability to name things. So he'll invent amazing things, things that are completely anachronistic. Like he invents uh, sticky notes, which is a weird little throwaway, but you go, well, they wouldn't have sticky notes, would they? Like, right. But I just, I don't even think about it. But it's, uh, like, paper with gum that will stay sticking on it device or something, something like that. Something stupid like, like that, yeah. Anytime, he can't name, name things. Shit. Uh, device that spins to make you go up in the air a lot is helicopter. Yeah, I can't uh, remember what the fucking bicycle was, but that was fucking great, too. It, It's... There's so many weird, quiet jokes about Pratchett that he's kind of hard to talk about because mm-hmm. I don't want to reveal like the big go into the murder mystery as we discussed involves assassins and fools and kings and all that. Which there is a whole nother layer of text there that you could talk about too mm-hmm. that I didn't even focus on this time through. But there, there is a lot of commentary on the need for a monarchy and. That one is really interesting to me from Pratchett's point of view, more than almost anyone else's, as a man who is very clearly proud of being British, Mm -hmm. but also very clearly critical of the British at the same time. And he sometimes misses stuff, but again, old white guy. But a, a Brit that kind of addresses the British need for a monarchy while how good it is to not have a monarchy. Mm -hmm. The Brits love their Royal family, but are like, do you want them to really be in charge of things? Like not really, but they're essential and we need them. When there's the, the little reveal of the, the thrones fucking rotted away. Yeah. uh, It's just the gold foil over top that's holding place. And Terry does not believe in the monarchy. And his views of it shine through. Uh, that yeah, I mean, I could do another read through and probably just focus on that. And oh, easily, even more shit. Um, the idea that the Ankh-Morpork is built on top of Ankh-Morpork and like they fall through and find under. I love under cities, mm-hmm. and you get to see like the history of some of the older kings through some of the undercity because it's you know up to two thousand years old in some point. I will say... Now that it's rediscovered, do they start using... Uh, uh, it comes up more as Ankh-Morpork is slowly dragged into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily that sewer system, but we do get to see more and more of the world as it develops. And as it's slowly kind of pulled into, by the end of the series, basically into the Victorian era. Right, right. Because Terry That's loves what I've the Victorian from era. what I, I do um, know of it. I will say, as much as all of the watch books build on each other, this and Feet of Clay, the very next one, are very much companion books. They are okay. the ones that feel the most like each other and pull in some of the... They do a lot to set up what the watch is going to be, and they pull in a lot of later world building comes out of those two, but these two are very good. I mean, mm. they're all great, mm-hmm. but very good self-contained stories, and they work as a really excellent duology as well. I still need to get back to 
just trying to get in more of the Discworld shit. It's hard. There's so many of them, yeah. and there's so many other things to read. I still haven't started the second Dragonlance series, mm. even though I said I was going to do that, like, the day of. Yeah, us doing that podcast, I had to go out and I bought the uh, the Annotated Chronicles, so I want to reread that oh, and get man. all the little the notes from i'm not allowed to go to bookstores <laughs> i'm gonna go to bookstores again soon like I, I like to pretend i won't but i'm lying through my teeth um i can't think of anything else i really don't know to say if i have too right much now. more to talk about i just ankh morpork is one of the most beautifully fully realized worlds like it feels like a it's real its own place. world and this book does a lot to build that and it just in a time where the real world is so difficult, I really appreciate being able to go into a, a different world, but still having it feel like a very complete world and still forcing me to think. When I dive into the world of Pokemon, as I already mentioned, that's escapism, pure and simple. And that's fine. Escapism mm -hmm. is important. But it's not the same when I go into Ankh-Morpork because it's still forcing me to confront... Things. The in, yeah, the injustices <laughs> of the world, the real world issues that we're still dealing with. I mean, as I said, this was written in 1993. We're still dealing with racism and what does it mean to be a police officer? And how do we like do police officers have power or no power or do we not have them at all? Or, mm -hmm. you know, if you're going to get rid of police officers, the way to do it is to not just pretend they don't exist and don't come up with a replacement. But also, you know, look at how badly it can go with the day watch. You see 10 seconds of them and you're like, oh, no, they're everything we shouldn't have. Um, we just need carrot. Yeah. But more than that, we need Vimes as well. And this book, I think, does a pretty good job. And I, again, I say it comes up much more in later books because growth. Carrot. Carrot's good about not taking hold of the power that he could, though. I say we need Carrot because I feel like Carrot being around will find a Vimes. Yes. We need Carrot for the idealism. We need Vimes for the, like, gritty, get-it-done cynicism. If Carrot didn't have cynical people around him that he brings up that also challenge him at the same time, Carrot would be a really boring character. Mm-hmm. But when you put him against Vimes or Angua or anything, you get that nice balance. I love the Carrot-Vimes relationship. Oh, they're fun. Um, did we decide on next week yet? Yes, Black Panther. Oh, yeah. Fuck. We talked about it this episode. I know. It's, I know. It's that, dude, that was like two people. hours ago. <laughs> that was two hours ago, and I was trying not to think about the sad things. Oh, man. But uh, we're going to make it happy because Black Panther is a fucking dope-ass character. Yes, we will be sad about Chadwick Boseman. We'll let you be sad about Chadwick Boseman. But we're going to do what we can to make it a celebration of the character of Black Panther and why he's so important. And just fucking cool. Huh? And just fucking cool. And just fucking cool. <laughs> oh, he's so cool. Um, but that's next week. That's next week. Do you have any recommendations for this week? I this ask as week, a question like we don't always have recommendations. Uh, this week, I I changed halfway through because of what we were talking about. Okay. I am going to recommend the HBO series The Wire. Let's talk about corrupt cops there, shall we? Uh, 
because that's another like cop thing that even that I can get through because of how nuanced it is. Um, it shows, it gives you hope because it shows people trying to do their jobs and do it the right way. It shows how the system's corrupt and the ways that it needs to be changed. Uh, you get the stories from the other side and why people would go into the life of crime and how it is attractive because of circumstance and they do some really crazy, awesome, neat things. Plus, I mean, honestly, like it's kind of just neat seeing this group that are trying to do like the cops that you focus on for the most part, mm -hmm. like the main group, they're trying to dismantle like the heads. Like they are trying not to have to go after the street level because they know that they're just trying to get by. Yeah. They just want to take down the organization. And, you know, that's where you see that the system's corrupt and they're just, some of the people are fucking outright racist and they're just like, no, go do fucking stop and frisks and this sort of shit. But it's neat seeing them have to deal. It's named The Wire because they're setting up fucking phone taps and shit in the age where burner cell phones are first coming into use. Yeah, because that was, what, early 2000s when it yeah. came out? And so it's really neat just having to, like seeing this group have to deal with this new problem. Mm -hmm. So it's also cool just on that level. Yeah. And there's a definite appeal to cop dramas. Mm -hmm. I mean, we just reviewed one. <laughs> like, uh, uh, and I mean, it's also one of the shows that brought us into the golden age of television that we're currently experiencing and is still one of the high points, honestly, through because of the storytelling involved. Yeah. And Omar is the biggest badass almost ever on TV. Fucking Omar coming. That's all I... Goddamn. Uh, what's his fucking name? Um, Michael K. Williams as Omar. Is he the guy that played the thing in the Fantastic Four movie? Mm. That guy was in The Wire, but I think I'm thinking of someone else. No, he's... Um, this guy. Oh, definitely not him. Okay. Cool. Omar. Omar is a fucking... One of the coolest characters ever. Watch it just for Omar. Omar's a fucking stick-up man. He makes his living by robbing other drug dealers' fucking stash houses. And everyone is so fucking scared of him that, like, they'll clear out fucking blocks when they see him coming. And in this early 2000s world, uh, and in the fucking hard-ass fucking gang world he's such a badass that he is openly gay making out with his boyfriend on the corner damn and people aren't fucking with in the him. early 2000s that's i mean in anything in the early yeah that's a lot that's still yeah going to be strong today good that's nice. and people fucking clear out when he comes walking because they're so fucking scared of him that is the best argument right there for the wire that i've ever heard uh <laughs> Just real quick, just because I feel like I should say something. I have really complicated feelings about the cops, and it is okay to have really complicated feelings about the cops. I don't know. I have friends who believe entirely in no police. I have friends that are strong police supporters. I, I, I don't know if we should never have any kind of police, but we definitely can't continue as is. It's my little speech. Sorry if it pisses you off. Not that sorry. Um... On that note, one of my recommendations is very short. It's only like a minute long. Toonami 
did a Black Lives Matter support video and having Tom from my childhood come out and stand in that just, I don't know, it felt weirdly powerful and like, check it out. Um, it's also, I think, how you should make statements of support in ways that you're doing it without just being a commercial for your product at the same time. I don't know. I, I have deep affection for Tom, the host of Toonami, because I've been watching him since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my other one is still topical, but much less. It is Black Panther, the album. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, from the album Kendrick Lamar put mm-hmm. together for that. It is really good. I did not like hip hop for a long time. And apparently package it as a superhero soundtrack. And I am quickly becoming fans because I have like four albums on my phone and saw two of them is Into the Spider-Verse and Black Panther, Panther the album. Awesome. Yeah. We'll talk about that more next week. Oh, absolutely. But I'm I really, just... I'm really happy you threw that out there. <laughs> um, speaking of next week. Yeah. Y'all should hit subscribe. However you're listening to us right now, that'd be super cool. Also, make it super easy to find us next week. Super, super fucking easy. Um, as we try not to get all sad. <laughs> uh, also, rate and review. That would be super cool because algorithms and getting us heard by more people and all of that. You're already listening to a podcast. You understand this shit. That's how I'm thinking <laughs> of it. <laughs> right? That's safe to assume? Yeah, I think you got it. I think that's safe to assume. Uh, you guys can always head over to our website, www.generalnerdcast.com. Uh, check out all of our back catalog there. While you're there, you can contact us through the website or emailing us, generalnerdrepod at gmail.com. Uh, while you're over at the website, if you click the links up at the top, we are part of the Earfirm Podcast Network. Go there to check out all the shows coming. We previewed one last week. I'm very excited. Uh, Word Balloons hopefully coming soon. In order to keep up for when that drops, just head, uh, checking out that website, EARVVYRM.com, will be the easiest way to catch all the updates across the site and all of our shows. Listen to, like, you can click the links and listen to the <laughs> ones that already exist. <laughs> uh, I guess it's not just new shit. I was just listening to it this morning. That's why it's on my mind. It's very themed. Uh... So you can listen to me talk about horror movies along with my co-host Danny over on Fried Squirms. Zach? You can listen to me and my buddy Malark talk about war and wargaming and war treatises over on The Art of Wargaming. Also, just going to drop it real fast. We just dropped our Patreon for Art of Wargaming, so check it out. We've got Patreon coming for a larger earworm. We just aren't there yet. We're not there yet. We're figuring that out. I'm fucking lazy. I'm, I'm not going to... You work a full-time job, man, at a grocery <laughs> store. It's not lazy. It's the 2020 is a lot. That's true. That's true. 2020 is a lot. Have I, oh, and find us on social media. Search for General Nerdery across all the things. will be what pops up. We're getting better about it. Slightly. <laughs> a little. A little bit. Just do it. Do it, please. We love you. We love you. In the meantime, we're your Generals of Nerdery. I'm Zach. I'm Tyler. Dismissed. Dismissed.